Women's Health Melbourne is a boutique specialist fertility and women's health practice, caring for women at all life stages. We're proud to provide world-class holistic medical care, including IVF and a range of other fertility treatments. We provide our patients with every opportunity to achieve their goals. Our two Melbourne locations are in Fitzroy and our new state-of-the-art Caulfield practice. Reach us at womenshealthmelbourne.com.au and you can follow both Women's Health Melbourne and Dr Rayleigh Alou on the socials. Welcome to Knocked Up, the podcast about getting pregnant from Women's Health Melbourne with Dr. Rayleigh Alou. Hi, welcome. Today we're going to talk about secondary infertility. So that's the term for when you've had a child, maybe had a couple of children and you want another one and you can't get pregnant. I certainly know some of my friends, they may have had their first easily, but when they've come to having their second or third child, they haven't been able to conceive. What, what is secondary fertility? Why does it happen? Secondary infertility refers to when a couple have conceived in the past, not necessarily having had a baby actually. Um, it, 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 the term refers to having been able to get pregnant naturally um, and that couple might have had a miscarriage or they might have had a, a termination or one or the other of the couple might have had a pregnancy in a previous relationship. Um, but secondary infertility is um, most commonly used to describe couples where they've had one baby and they want to have another. And while it may not necessarily have been easy to have baby number one, they conceived naturally and they've been trying for six to 12 months without success. So it's you've conceived naturally, not necessarily had a baby, but definitely conceived naturally. Based on previous conversations, age plays a big part. Is that the major factor in secondary infertility? Advancing age of both parents does increase the chance of a couple suffering infertility, but it's not the only issue. So it's important when a couple is considering what might be contributing not to purely have an age-based perspective, um, but in a lot of circumstances that might be the reason that it's more difficult for couples to conceive. So if we maybe let's start with the male, what could be factors that impact secondary infertility from the, from the man's perspective? If a man has conceived in the past, that means that at a point in time previously he had adequate sperm volume, concentration and function to achieve fertilisation of egg in the body. That doesn't necessarily mean that that's the situation right now and there's a lot of factors that could be contributing to why that isn't happening from the male perspective. I always say that as we get older, we collect pathology and that's not unique to women. What does that mean, collect pathology? So we, we develop problems that we didn't have when we were younger. So often a male contemplating a pregnancy later in life might be carrying a bit of extra weight compared to what he was previously. He might not be as active or exercising as well. He might have a reduced libido to previously and might not be having sex as often or getting the timing right to have a baby. A lot of guys have erectile dysfunction and it's not spoken about very much but um, there are some men who have a lot of trouble achieving sexual intercourse, erection and ejaculation and that becomes more common as we get older. 
there are a lot of men now who are planning families later in life. I guess there always have been. Uh, but as men do get older, the quality of their sperm deteriorates. So while men make sperm until they die, the quality of the sperm is severely compromised. Exactly. So sperm has more DNA damage and it's less uh, in terms of the, the profile of sperm, it can deteriorate quite significantly with lifestyle factors. So things like how much a man exercises, how much oxidative stress he has in his body, um, what other things are going on in his in his general health. So if a man has problems with his hormones or has diabetes or even insulin resistance, a lot of other conditions that might be going on can impact his his health. Men can develop varicose veins of the testes, which can impact sperm quality, and, and that's really common. It's called varicocele, and that can be mild, moderate or severe, and certainly moderate and severe varicoceles um, do impact sperm quality. And the reason for that is the testis biologically is designed to be a few degrees cooler than, than the core body temperature. And when a man has severe varicoceles, uh, that can mean that the testis itself is at, sitting at a higher temperature because the cooling mechanisms of the testis are compromised. And that means that the sperm quality might be affected. How would a man know that he's been impacted by these factors? Obviously, he'll know his older, he'll know his weighs more. But how would he know the other things? A lot of men are completely unaware until they start trying to have a baby and there's a problem. And even then, culturally, and I guess the psyche is to potentially think of the woman as being uh, the main burden of infertility in a couple, because it's well known that female fertility declines with age. And it's not as well known or it's it's under-recognised by the population that that's the same for the man. So a lot of men don't get checked out until quite late in the piece. Quite often women undertake extensive investigations and it's only at the last minute that a man has an appointment with a doctor or a semen analysis. And it's actually quite invasive for the woman, whereas for the man it's simple, isn't it, the tests? Look, from, from my perspective as a doctor, it's relatively simple. I know from my experience talking to patients that there's a lot of reservation that men feel about having a sperm test. They feel it's embarrassing. Uh, they feel that it, to some degree on a psychological level that their manhood is in question sometimes, but they shouldn't because really when a couple want to have a baby, it's a joint affair and it totally makes sense to investigate both the male and the female when there's an unexplained secondary infertility that we need to get to the bottom of. Even with when you're having your first child, wouldn't it be worth the man being tested too? Definitely, but in my experience, women take a lot of the responsibility for fertility and often the man is tested in practice after several investigations have been undertaken at the level of the GP with the woman. Um, not always, and I would always recommend that, and certainly in my practice, whenever anyone calls for an appointment, my receptionist tells them that when you're trying to conceive as a couple... Responsibility of both. It is, and both patients need to be seen as patients and worked up individually so that we can get to the bottom of, of the problem um, effectively and efficiently. And it's not a blame game, it's just trying to solve the problem for them so that as a couple they can conceive quickly as possible. For the female, again, age would be a factor. What, what else is impacting? So women also collect pathology, as I like to put it, as we get older. By the time you're 35, 
seven out of ten women will have some kind of fibroid in their uterus. Um, not necessarily. So a fibroid is the kind of benign tumour of the uterus and it can range from something that's completely a incidental finding that's inconsequential or it can be something that can really distort the anatomy of the uterus and can even sit inside the cavity of the uterus acting like an IUD. Women's cycles change as we get older, um, so often they shorten and we ovulate a little bit earlier than previously, so it's important to know your cycle. So that happens as you get older, your cycle does shorten with age? It does, mm. yeah, and it's a, it's a natural consequence of our ovarian reserve declining. And um, our ovarian reserve declines, so we do lose eggs from our ovary every day of our lives, from when we're born to when we go through menopause. But in addition to that, egg quality declines and the metabolic potential and reproductive potential of, of our eggs declines such that when we're 35, only about half of our eggs would have any potential to go on and be a baby. And by the time we hit 40, it's only one out of 10. So as we do age, the chance of getting pregnant per month goes down. When you start trying when you're in your early 20s, your chance per month of getting pregnant is about kind of one in five, about 20% per month. By the time you're 40, that declines to about, you know, 5% per month. So while women still do conceive later on in life, in their reproductive lives, it is naturally more difficult. And by the time a woman's 40, every time she gets pregnant, there's a 50% chance that she'll have a miscarriage. Certainly egg quality is probably uh, the undisputed most common reason for secondary infertility in women. But there can be other things and we shouldn't overlook them because there's a lot of modifiable factors potentially that we can correct fairly easily. Like a lot of women in their 30s develop thyroid disorders and other autoimmune diseases. It's very common. And recognising and uh, correcting things like thyroid dysfunction, especially hypothyroidism, um, correcting things like removing gluten in the diet if someone's uh, got a celiac issue. A lot of people have a genetic tendency but... That's only a risk factor, but people can develop celiac disease as they age in terms of uh, having antibodies to gluten. So we're not saying that cutting out gluten will solve secondary infertility. It's if you are predisposed, it's something to look at because it could develop as you get older. Yeah, and you've got to do the tests to realise if that's an issue. There's a whole gamut of tests that we can do. Women can get sexually transmitted infections and you can't make the assumption that because somebody's had a baby before that they can't have in the intervening years contracted something like chlamydia. So tubes can become blocked from that. Tubes can be blocked because of endometriosis and that's a progressive condition that if a woman has to begin with can develop further over the years and uh, progressive disease activation with having menstrual cycle after menstrual cycle um, can cause progressive problems including tubal blockage. Women can have had um, an infection following a procedure, like following a DNC if they've had a miscarriage. What's a DNC? Uh, just a curette or any kind of gynaecological procedure or even an IUD and that could you know, contribute to an issue if someone's had an infection with an IUD, that can cause blocked tubes. It's not common to have these things but it is more common in the group of women who present with secondary infertility than the general population. In terms of chlamydia and other STIs that could be doing this, are these picked up in a smear? No, not specifically. I mean, lots of GPs at the time of your cervical screening will do swabs for these things. 
but you know, it's not a perfect world. We're not all monogamous in our committed partnerships. We might have changed partnerships since we had baby number one. And um, it's just something to think about. So you've just got to consider whether they've had an infection, whether when a woman comes for secondary infertility. Same for the man. Um, you can get an acquired blockage of the sperm escaping from the ejaculate from an, a sexually transmitted infection. Uh, it's called obstructive azospermia when there's no sperm in the ejaculate the testes are working normally, there's just a blockage. And scarring after an infection is one of those the causes for that problem. It's definitely worth getting checked out then if you're having problems conceiving the second time around or the next time around. What about acquired issues? So we sort of touched on things that can happen as you get older, the acquired pathology, as you mentioned. What are some examples? So examples of things that might have changed acquired issues are having hormonal problems due to kind of hormonal disarray. So we talked about thyroid disorders, but you can have a prolactin-secreting tumour that you've developed or uh, you may have a dysfunctional ovulation either due to weight gain or polycystic ovarian syndrome that is unchecked or you might have uh, extreme exercise-induced um, kind of lack of ovulation. So ovulating regularly is important. You can have a kind of perimenopausal picture also and more and more as women are trying to have babies in their 40s, I do see patients who are seeking fertility who are in that perimenopausal period where their menstrual cycles are becoming irregular and shortened and dysfunctional. So that in itself uh, shouldn't be overlooked. It, it's happening more and more. We can have anatomical changes. We mentioned causes like endometriosis and, and uterine fibroids, infections. Uh, there's another problem called Asherman syndrome, which is often something that happens after a uterine infection or multiple procedures where the uterus can have adhesions within, within the uterine cavity where the walls of the, of the endometrial cavity where a baby's meant to implant can stick together with adhesions uh, and that can stop someone from getting pregnant. Uh, there are immune issues that we recognise. We don't really understand a lot, of the a lot of the interactions between immune system and pregnancy but we know that they're important. Uh, and, of course, we do acquire genetic damage uh, both in egg and sperm as we do get older, both in men and women. There are some examples. It sounds that based on previous episodes that we've done where we've talked about lifestyle factors and trying to get pregnant and other things to look at, secondary infertility, the only reason it's sort of maybe scary is because you've had one child so you know everything works, so why isn't it working again? But really it's... It's just following the same advice as previously, making sure you're checked up, thinking about your diet, thinking about your lifestyle and watching your stress levels. I have to say with secondary infertility, especially when women are older and also when men are older, while I do give advice to optimise lifestyle as much as possible because you want to do everything you can to help this couple have another baby, I probably have a slightly lower threshold for intervention because if I think, especially if I think it's egg quality, related because what that tells me is that there's a very limited window to help this couple have a baby and if we don't take full advantage of that they may not be able to. So I'm much more likely in secondary infertility to recommend technologies like genetic screening of embryos, um, pre-implantation genetic testing. If a woman has a reasonable ovarian reserve with an IVF cycle uh, I can help her make as many eggs in one treatment as she would release naturally in one year. Now, I always say there's not a baby in every batch of eggs. 
but certainly increasing the number of eggs in play increases a woman's chance radically of having a normal egg come forward and of having a normal embryo develop. We also know that women as we get older have an increased risk of miscarriage and we have an increased risk of just not getting pregnant in the first place. And by screening embryos genetically, what we can do is strategically rule out embryos that are destined to be transferred if we don't test them. So we take embryos, we say, look, their genes aren't quite right. This embryo is very unlikely to be a baby. We're not going to transfer it. We're not going to waste a month of your time. And time becomes such a precious commodity. If there's not an embryo that can be a baby in an IVF cycle, in this group of women, I want to know that and I want to move forward with a second course of treatment without wasting the months of their time that it would take by what I call trial by transfer, by putting an embryo back. The reality is that embryos with the wrong chromosome number can look completely healthy to us in the lab. Certainly if an embryo doesn't look healthy, that does increase its risk of being abnormal. But I always say an example is every baby ever born with Down syndrome, if we had had the opportunity to look at that embryo in the lab on day five, it would have looked like a perfect embryo by virtue of the fact that it's been able to go further and be a baby. So we cannot discern genetic abnormalities in embryos by looking at them under the microscope. We can have some tools in the lab which are excellent, like the embryoscope, where we can analyse the embryo's progress. But it's, it's a flawed tool. It's, a, it's an imperfect tool. So while it can help us predict normality, it doesn't tell us for sure. By genetically screening embryos for women who are a little bit older, um, certainly over 37, uh, studies have shown it's cost effective. So even though the genetic testing adds to the cost of treatment, it is cost effective because we're eliminating embryos from transfer. And in couples with secondary infertility where they've had a normal baby in the past, my experience is if you give them a normal embryo, they are much more likely to get pregnant and have a baby in the future because probably the issue with them is that they are making abnormal embryos. It sounds like secondary infertility is fairly normal but not something to sit on. So certainly if you are trying, you should you should start to explore help after a few months, certainly sooner than if you were younger and trying for your first. Where do you go for help? How does that start? So firstly, I'd recommend seeing your GP and just making sure that you've had some baseline investigations to pick up major problems. Potentially, you could think about having a fallopian tubal flush procedure, which I often organise for my patients. That can be organised by a GP, but it's not common most likely recommend you have a referral to see someone like myself, like a fertility specialist. That would probably help with continuity of care down the line as well. It does. And it just makes, you know, kind of you certain that everything's being looked into and that kind of you're in a good place moving forward. I don't necessarily advocate jumping into treatment for everybody. I think it's important to analyse everybody's care as an individual and make sure that there aren't obvious problems that can be fixed if there are to fix them. There are solutions short of IVF to help increase your chance of getting pregnant on a month-to-month basis, um, like ovulation induction and IUI. That may be something that, that is relevant for some couples, 
but certainly there's a massive role for pre-implantation genetic screening and IVF in secondary infertility. Certainly more so than primary infertility. Thank you for joining us this week at Knocked Up, the podcast. We'll be back again next week. And as always, for more information, you can visit Women's Health Melbourne at the website or find us on the socials for any questions, podcasts at womenshealthmelbourne.com.au. Thank you.